0: The unseen grips the populace. As a human being, made invisible and insane by a potent drug, preys on the citizenry, intent on vengeance. Prison walls cannot hold him. Scotland Yard cannot stop him. And while science works frantically, while a loved one waits and hopes, the invisible hands of a condemned murderer deal out death and destruction. Spectre, I don't understand. Jeffrey, he's invisible. Why can't I see him? Oh, he's here, is he? Catch him, Inspector. He wants to kill me. Hey, you can't go upstairs. I do you afraid, darling? I can leave any moment I like. Take care of yourself, darling. I'll be all right. See, Helen, don't look at me like that. Gifford, he didn't kill Michael. Oh, didn't he? That shows how little you know, dear old Richard. No, no, no. Okay. <laughs>
1: Welcome to episode 66 of The Bloody Pit. I am Rod Barnett. I am Troy Gwynn. And we're here tonight to do something a little different this episode. We've decided that uh, we've uh, stuck around in the uh, the area of the cinema world where things have color far too long. Although we, we did dip into a, a black and white kaiju film last year with the first Gamera movie from 1965, uh, we've decided to indulge ourselves just a tad bit more than average and uh, we've decided to go back and do a march through, of course it'll be a slow march I guess,
2: Yeah. <laughs> but a
1: march nevertheless yeah. through the uh, horror films from Universal Studios starting in 1940. We're going to try to take a run through the Universal Horror Films of the 1940s starting in 1940 and going up until, I'm going to assume, the Abbott and Costello movies. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. We're not going to try to go to take that dip into the 50s, although God, I would love to. With, mm-hmm. You know, things yeah, like Tarantula sure. yeah. and Creature from the Black Lagoon and a mm-hmm. bunch of really interesting movies there. But I could be tempted into doing that one day. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. But the pace that we go at, Troy, I think that it would probably take us forever. Considering yes, how much there is,
2: yes, yeah. It's a, well,
1: considering how long it's going to take us just to work our way through 1940, the year 1940 alone yeah. is probably going to cripple us.
2: <laughs> yeah. Plus, that, I mean, considering the fact that we'll probably want to sprinkle other things, uh, other things between, you know, here and there between these, you know. But uh, yeah. you know that it's yeah. So so yes, uh, it will be a. Uh, it was be. We're going to savor We hope you will savor her with us this long and drawn-out affair. <laughs> <John and laughs>
1: this extremely long process <laughs> of getting through the 1940s Universal Horror Output. Um, we'll uh, tell you which one we'll cover uh, the next time Troy and I sit down together at the end of the show. But tonight, we're going to focus on the sequel to the invisible man the second film in uh, universal's uni- uh, i'm sorry universal studios invisible man series uh, there were four movies quote unquote four movies uh, unless you count the invisible man movie that uh, they did with Evan Costello. Costello, yeah which is kind of a remake of mm. this yes, movie.
2: Yes, it is. You said it first. I was going to yeah, say it at some point during yeah. the show, but we might as well just get that right out the front here. They essentially lifted the plot for Abbott Costello makes Invisible man, yep. man from this movie we're doing tonight. Yep, <laughs> yep,
1: yep. Yeah, uh, in, in the Abbott Costello film, they just made him a boxer. Yeah, there yeah.
2: Was, but once again, it was somebody, it was a guy who uh, is is uh, not a mad scientist, not the guy who invents the serum himself, but right. uses it to try and clear his name. So, yeah. Yep, yeah. <laughs> accused
1: of a crime he did not commit. Right. Which, I don't know why they haven't done more movies like that. That's such a fresh It's, it's a, a great idea. Part. I, I mean, that that seems to me to be such a great idea, just ripe for I know. Ex- exploitation. I know. All we
2: ever see are movies about killers who actually did what they, what they you know, <laughs> actually are the killers. Just
1: People <laughs> accused of things they actually, <laughs> they actually did. actually committed. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> God. So tonight, once again, <laughs> we are going to delve into the black and white joys of the Universal Films of the 1940s and talk about The Invisible Man Returns. Of course, this is uh, this is this is going to be a fun one to talk about. There are mm-hmm. a lot of, uh, of fascinating things in here. Yeah, uh, I will have started that you will have heard already. The trailer for the film, which gives you a, a little taste of both uh, the score, some of the dialogue from the movie, and uh, the uh, information. Uh, I think it is is in the trailer that uh, the cast in this is pretty nice. This mm-hmm. is uh, the uh, first Universal horror film, depending on how you look at it, for Vincent Price. Mm-hmm. Although. The year before, he had been in Tower, Tower of London, London yeah, yeah. which sometimes mm. gets called a universal horror film, and I think, to my mind, it kind of is, but it, more people tend to think of it as a as an historical drama.
2: Yeah, yeah. but it's it certainly just, has dark and you know and, and and kind of gothic and horror overtones in it. It's, it's got it?
1: Boris Karloff being evil.
2: Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. doesn't
1: that kind of all? It's just <laughs> yeah. make it just
2: sort of automatically, yeah, like a horror film. I mean.
1: I don't know. Anyway, um, regardless of how it how you uh, run it down, this is uh, one of the first uh, starring roles for Vincent Price in Hollywood. Although uh, you hear his voice long before you see his face yeah. in this film, <laughs> yeah. Which uh, is very much the same pattern as with the original classic film. And I don't think either of us are going to surprise uh, the listener by trying to claim that this film, the sequel, is better than the original. Because it's not. No. The the original film by James Whale from 1933 is um, as close to an unassailable classic as I think you're probably ever going to get in -hmm. in this kind of genre, in this kind of time period. It's an astonishing film and brilliant from top to bottom. But there are some uh, wonderful technical yes. uh, improvements made in this by the special effects team. Yeah, John Fulton's effects uh, yeah. pretty amazing and well worth talking about. But there are a number of other things to talk about as well.
2: Yeah. And this is fun for me because I had not seen this film in a long time. Where either the, me the original, either. The, the first film, I had actually seen several times over the last few years. You know, and 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 this one, so it was really. So, I had not remembered a whole lot about this film other than that. I remembered that I had enjoyed it when I saw it years and years ago. So, it was kind of cool to come back to this one again.
1: Well, let's go ahead and point out that although this film is uh, readily available on DVD as part of the Universal DVD set of the Invisible Man, of their four Invisible Man films uh, the original This, uh, The Invisible Woman, and Invisible, Invisible Agent. Mm-hmm. Uh, Those latter two films, of course, we'll eventually get to in this series, and I'm kind of looking forward to doing that, Uh, although the quality does drop off perceptibly, Mm -hmm. I uh, thoroughly enjoy these movies, and uh, I'm a little frustrated that Universal has not yet given these four films the Blu-ray treatment.
2: Uh, yeah, me too. Um, you know, it's it's yeah, that's that that you bring up a good point there. I'm not sure why that hasn't come around yet. Maybe they're waiting for the big invisible man part of their big franchise here, their their uh the their universe is, that yeah. has been killed by fandom already but while in its
1: crib yeah, before yeah. it even <laughs> Fandom's fandom strangled it before the mummy <laughs> yeah, even came yeah. out. So Yeah, yeah. And and what's terrible is I I almost I almost could have given someone a call and told them, by the way, mm. there's no way to make the fans happy yeah. anymore, so yeah. you're yeah. never going to give them what they want, so you're not mm. going to get that upswell that would, would get you past a bumpy start, so if you have any kind of bumpy start whatsoever, the fans are going to just stand there and urinate on your head well, until it's
2: dead. So. We've talked about this before, is the fact that Hollywood needed to start listening to the fans to a degree, and they did. And there was this golden kind of period there when you yeah. know they're saying, they, now they've listened to the fans too much <laughs> These yeah. days Now they're now they're putting too much.
1: There's there's the, there's a little too much internet driving yes. the cinema instead of cinema driving the internet, mm-hmm. and it's um,
2: almost starting to become as bad as or worse than a test audience, which I have always hated the concept of a test yeah. audience. Now this is almost even worse because this audience isn't even watching the film yet before they <laughs> pronounce before, it before it they slag it. it completely yeah, exactly. and decide that it's garbage. <laughs> yeah. Yes,
1: exactly. But <sighs> that's a. I, I guess that's a, that's a mini rant. That is a mini rant, and uh,
2: that's free. That's, that's not included in your not included in your not. No, in words, it's included in your cost of the podcast. There is. <laughs> I
1: was about to say maybe we should start a Patreon and just a do Patreon nothing for but rants. rants. Yes, and yes. Just, we could do like
2: three. how much would you pay to hear Rod and I rant every month?
1: <laughs> be, we, we could do a separate podcast just for the Patreon page that we created, just, just called this month's fifteen minute rant. Yeah. I would actually be willing to do it weekly. Yeah. Just if there's any interest in listening to me, bitch, mercilessly. For 15 minutes a week as a podcast, right? Hey, you let me know, and if if there's an upswell of interest and 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 a large crowd of people start waving dollar bills at me, I mean, I'm willing to do that. I don't know about you, but I'm doing that. Yeah, sure, why not? I do it in my private life daily while I'm sitting in a car cursing mm. other drivers. So why not just make it something? I mean, you know, give it yeah. focus. Yeah. Try to sure. set, you know horn well, it in on some mm-hmm. specific topic that actually would be relevant to the yeah. to the podcast at hand, and we'll just go from mm-hmm. there.
2: Mm-hmm. But, I would rather hear you do that than read poetry. You know. So. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you, know we, you don't want to hear me read the, the love song of J. Alfred proof. Is, is that what you're
2: telling me? The, uh, the works of Percy Dove tonsils, yeah.
1: <laughs> alright, alright. Before we get uh, too far into... The madness that we're obviously already mm. in the middle of. Uh, let me remind you that the podcast can be reached at thebloodypit at gmail.com. If you have any comments, please let us know. We'll be glad to hear from you. And I tell you what, we're going to take a quick break here. Uh, you'll hear a few words from our non-existent sponsors. Actually, just mm. some other mm. podcasts that are mm. are done by friends of ours who that, that are recommended, that are yep. highly recommended by yes. us. And also a few interesting... Tidbits uh, here and there as I scatter them about. And then we will come back in and uh, Troy and I will talk about The Invisible Man Returns from 1940.
3: Hello, Christopher. What insanity are you up to today? Oh, hey, Lydia. I'm downloading some movies. What? <laughs> People are always telling me that's illegal. Uh uh-uh, uh, not these. They're all public domain.
1: Oh, look, Rescue from Gilligan's Island.
3: Well, let me see what you're doing. Oh, you're at Archive.org. Well, they have thousands of films, TV shows, commercials, radio shows, and books available.
1: Yeah, but there are so many. I wish there's a podcast or something that would discuss these things. You know, give us an idea of what's worth the time.
3: Um, Christopher, there is. We do one. <laughs>
1: oh, that's right. We host Orphan Entertainment. Once a month, we pick something and review and discuss it. That sure is nice of us.
3: Sure. Why don't you click over to Orphan Entertainment and remind yourself a little more about the show? Oh,
1: we'll do. Let's see, that's at orphanentertainment.com. And yeah, it looks like we're available on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. Oh, hey, can we review the
3: Gilligan's Island movie someday? Mm hmm. We'll see, Christopher. We'll see.
0: Ages ago, in a long-lost part of the world, the Mayans worshipped a terrifying goddess. To her, men offered their strength and their devotion. Women offered the beauty of their bodies. Altíki, the immortal monster. Today, courageous adventurers, dedicated scientists of both sexes, begin the exploration of recently discovered caverns buried in the very womb of the Earth. Ah! 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 From space beyond space comes force beyond measurement, energizing this monstrous mass of man-eating protoplasm that devours every living thing it touches. When her mate appears in the sky, the power of Kaltiki will destroy the world. You can believe what you like. Kaltiki's been reborn. Awesome. anything on this earth stop cal tiki the immortal monster all right fellas here's your story greetings my friend we are all interested in the future for that is where you and i are going to spend the rest of our lives and we cannot keep this a secret any longer wait captain i have found evidence of intelligent beings on this planet
1: Look to the skies, it's the B Movie Cookbook! Menus inspired by 15 of your favorite B Movies from the 1950s, with teenage werewolves, blobs, and enough cheese for everyone. When we return to our planet, the High Court may well sentence you to torture! But until then, we've got Ed Wood and Vincent Price.
0: There'll be food and drink and ghosts, and perhaps even a few murders. You're all invited.
1: So, impress your friends with dinner and a movie, with the B Movie Cookbook. We've got you covered. Get your copy today at bmoviecookbook.com That's bmoviecookbook.com Let me see that book. I am interested to see what sways your mind so heavily. Sure thing, just visit bmoviecookbook.com Forty. It had been seven years since uh, the first Invisible Man film, and of course, mm-hmm. that was a huge hit, done by James Whale, with <clears throat> incredible, groundbreaking special effects done mm-hmm. by John Fulton and his crew. A landmark film in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Claude Rains is brilliant in it. Uh, the movement that he, his character has in mad, you know, mm-hmm. into madness uh, mm-hmm. to the point where he's he's. Offing scores of people yeah. <laughs> is an absolute joy, and it is a great film. And in a lot of ways, you can see why it might have, it might have taken them seven years to figure. You know what the hell? You know what? What do we do next? If we if we want to mm-hmm. make a sequel to this, yeah. because a sequel is going to make us money. It took them for it took them a very long time to decide to do it and one of the reasons that they decided to do it was that they after not making horror films for a couple of years because of the the whole thing where the, the their horror films were were being uh, banned from Britain mm-hmm. uh, starting in about 1934 1935 so universal kind of slacked off they didn't really make any horror films for a couple of years right. there when they came back they really did a prestige feature they brought back Karloff as the monster and they made Son of Frankenstein mm-hmm. which is Yeah my personal favorite of the original uh, Frankenstein films that the universal made. And that film had been such a huge hit mm-hmm. in 39 that it became a no brainer to go ahead and start making sequels to some of their other giant horror hits from mm-hmm. the early thirties. So this went into production. They made it in late 1939 it got released in January 12th, I think 1940. One could say that in some ways they hewed very closely to the structure of and the and the, and the specifics of character dynamics mm-hmm. of the first film, but they also do strike out into some interesting areas with this, yeah. in that uh, in the first film, Claude Rains goes mm-hmm. crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, he, he goes crazy and is a murdering lunatic. Yeah. In this movie, we have the invisible man who's uh, well aware that this stuff that is making him invisible has driven a man insane before mm, and right. that, that was attributable to the drug that does this to him. Yeah. But the hope is that um the injection can be uh can, that this that this can be reversed and he won't be put in the position of becoming a, a murdering madman like mm-hmm. Claude Rains's character from the first film. Mm-hmm. But we do get a little <laughs> bit of that. Yeah. And uh the thing is uh what makes him a little bit nicer invisible man in this is that he does not go just killing scumbags and mm-hmm. and and murdering everything in sight uh all of the stuff that he does in this movie is very interesting in that he's pointing his uh derision his ire his uh mm-hmm. what violence he has at people that honestly deserve it yeah so it makes it a little bit easier to be on his side yeah in in this film mm-hmm. whereas at a certain point with claude Rains. You You're just got like, <laughs> yeah. You, you, you you've stopped enjoying watching what he's doing and kind of being amazed by the special effects yeah. and kind of backing away from him, going, "Oh, he's the villain of the piece, yeah. isn't he? He's yeah. actually a yeah. monster." Yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas the Invisible Man in this movie really never becomes a monster. No, and you can see
2: the inherent there's there's the pros and cons to this particular. I guess we say quote unquote monster because the Invisible Man is often included in the pantheon of universal monsters but essentially we're talking about what's really just a naked man you know which isn't quite as (laughs) frightening as a werewolf or a vampire so (laughs) these stories have to be driven not by a lot of other things including i mean primarily your story has to really drive it has to drive what's going on as far as you have to have interesting plot developments progressions once you've gotten pat first one out of the way which part of the whole fascination was just watching him go mad and become this 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 killer it's tough to repeat that and make that effective. So, the film is going to become more about how interesting you make the plot. And, of course, the fun you're going to have with the audience and the fun they're going to have watching the ways you technically try to suggest something invisible moving here, you know, something invisible yeah. force.
1: And, there. of course, in the intervening years. It's not as if, you know, cinema and Hollywood stood still uh, as far as special mm-hmm. effects are concerned. So there were other movies mm-hmm. that played, you know, they weren't, there weren't you know, other Invisible Man movies, mm-hmm. of course, but there were other films that utilized some of the same mm-hmm. ideas mm-hmm. As special effects techniques to get across certain, um, mm-hmm. certain trick photography shots within movies. Uh, mm-hmm. Topper springs yes. to mind, some, yeah. you know, specifically, you know, movies where they were using that, uh, those, those camera tricks, Uh, and special effects technology to to do ghostly things. Yeah, yeah. Which is all well and good, but that's very different from what's going on here. This is... Mm. Although we, you know, yes, of course, as you said, he's included in
2: yeah.
1: uh, with the the, har- the 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 universal horror monsters pantheon, mm. but to a large degree this is more a sci- a science fiction yeah, movie very much so. yeah. Yeah, than uh, a horror movie. There yeah. are uh, especially in the first movie it del- it develops into a horror movie. Yeah. The invisible man becomes a horror movie as the mental state of the main character deteriorates. Mm. In this movie, one would be hard pressed except for the fact that there are some darker elements, you know, kind of interwoven within the story, mm-hmm. to really just on its own mm-hmm. call this a horror movie. Yeah, yeah. Because this is much more a science fiction movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason that um, you're going to keep this in that genre and call it, mm-hmm. you know, a universal horror movie is because it is a sequel to a, a an actual movie that is a horror movie. Yeah, yeah. And. When we get to the third and the fourth films in the series, uh, we get even mm. further and further away. Yes, from they the really start aspects. thinking of it. Yeah. It's
2: more like let's create. They're more like here's our story. How we're going to fit an invisible something into this? Yeah, know, that and, kind of and, thing. And,
1: and it's and the thing is, it's like we, we with the first film, yeah, it was a horror movie, mm. uh, and that becomes evident. It's not it's not evident from the jump, but by the time you get to the end, it's like oh yeah, this was definitely a horror movie. Mm. By the time we get to the film just after this. The comedy thing, the comedy elements that had been woven into the first film, which were really kind of dark comedy bits, mm-hmm. um, there's some comedy in this one as well. Mm-hmm. Um,
2: not much. It's more restrained. It's
1: more restrained. It's
2: Which, it's you know O'Connor, anything is restrained.
1: So. <laughs> well, what I'm talking about specifically for no. the first film is the dark yes, the, the the stuff. Yes, with the James the Whale, Whale where, kind of weird. Precisely. That same dark humor that really blossomed heavily and with no restraint it appeared in Bride of Frankenstein yeah. in 35. Yeah. Yeah. You could see in 33 in The, in the, in, the mm-hmm. in the Invisible Man as well. And in this movie, they they keep some humor in it not and there's a little dark humor very mm-hmm. very very light mm-hmm. but most of the humor that's in this movie in the invisible man returns is much more um one would say kind of middle of the road it's a safer oh, humor yeah. Yeah. than what uh, got
2: put into the 33 film definitely of course well, safer is the kind of the word the operative word to kind of describe the whole difference between '40s Universal and '30s Universal.
1: Agreed. And now, starting in 1940, we're starting. I think we're going to see this get more and more evident as we go through the 1940s with these movies. And and of course, we're not we're not stating anything that hasn't been written about for decades at this point. But by a certain point, once World War II begins. Um, when they're making these movies, they Universal is well aware that their main audience at this point is going to be a much younger audience. Mm-hmm. So the films mm-hmm. became skewed a bit more, mm-hmm. not all of them and not all of the time, but most of them became much more skewed toward a juvenile audience, toward a younger audience, toward uh, an audience that was going there to see these things on mm-hmm. a Saturday matinee in general. Mm-hmm. And th- th- they knew that was their main audience because... The real world really kind of had kind of it, you weren't if you were going there for if you were going to the cinemas for escape mm-hmm. in the in the '40s and you were an adult, mm-hmm. you wanted something different than uh, a universal horror film generally.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so they knew their audience was skewing younger, yeah. And that is, um, they plowed that ground pretty heavily. Yeah.
2: Well, you know, <clears throat> since this is our first episode in the series, why don't we take just a minute to Talk about why did we choose to do a series on the forties universal horror movies as opposed to the thirties? We don't have to repeat this every time we do these episodes, but it is the That's first time, idea. so sure. most people can probably guess. But I mean, I think essentially we both agree that they, there's not in, as much attention focused on these films as there is on the on the thirties films, and that these films tend to sometimes get maybe not as much credit as as they
1: deserve. Agreed. I, I think that simply because um, they get included because they there are box sets where yes. you're gonna get all of the Frankenstein movies and mm-hmm. all of the Wolfman movies and all of the Dracula movies. And so you end up with the these movies that got produced in the forties as well as the ones that are generally superior that was mm-hmm. that were mm-hmm. produced in the in the thirties. There's a um, a tendency as time goes by to see them all as a continuum, as as, mm-hmm. as one large group, but that's really not how it's probably best mm-hmm. to view these movies. Yeah. Um Once you start digging into them, yeah. Um, if you're only seeing these movies pell mell randomly on television when you're a kid, it's a different matter because, Mm -hmm. um, you may get to see the original Frankenstein one week and House of Mm -hmm. Frankenstein the next, Mm -hmm. and you're jumping, you know, 15 years into the future Mm -hmm. and seeing a massively different kind of film, Mm -hmm. both, you know, you're Mm -hmm. both a slicker film in the 40s. And also one that is geared much more toward being something that that original film was not yeah um there it w- it was aimed at a different audience, yeah. and I think one of the reasons that we wanted to do the forties films is there has not been as much attention placed on them i mean yeah. there there are i can I could name five books right now that do concentrate on the movies produced in the nineteen forties yeah and i and i 'm glad of them Me too. but at the same time, and the general populace and the consciousness mm. of mm. horror film fans even. Um, fans who do delve heavily into the Universal Horror stuff, the 40s stuff is looked down on and I think sometimes glossed over to a degree to the point where even a, a really good book on the subject might get ignored because... The 30s films are much more serious, and they're taken more seriously because there's more depth, there's mm. more care, there's more of a sense of a filmmaker's hand on the tiller mm. guiding this into yes. a, in a certain direction. And that, I'll agree, is not really true of most of the films in the 40s. There exactly. are a few, no, there are a few right. spots yes. here and there where that's yeah. different, but mm. I think what makes the 40s films worth d- diving into, besides them not getting as much attention as mm. the films from the 30s, is that... There are little bitty, well, there are gems, and there are also yeah. within films that are not as great as we might hope they are. There are elements that really need to be teased out and talked about.
2: Yeah, well, one of my <clears throat> one of my real kind of gripes with continual gripes with with the home video market uh, and the way that the Universal films have been handled is. How few, how uh, how f- very very few audio commentaries, you know, things like that. Extras, yeah. These films get it never fails, no matter what new format they bring them out into. You know, it's, it's man the original Frankenstein or the original Dracula might get two or three commentaries, but but good luck finding one on most of their sequels. You know, Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein do. Maybe yeah, Sun. Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe. but it's like, but not really. you look at the Mummy films, you know, the first one, of course, gets a couple of commentaries, nothing on the rest of them, and, the, and I think, again, it's just furthering that perception that there's nothing, is that thematically, there's just not much there to talk about in these 40s films, that all the layers that were, included, that were allowed in those 30s films, the censors and the public, you know, and the war and everything just kind of, you know, filtered out, and it's... Yeah. I'm sitting there thinking that you know i I love those movies of the thirties and worship those films, but i' think I've read and heard enough about I, about them. I would love to hear more information about the forties films, and I'm sure that these guys the um all those universal experts out there that do such great work on covering them, you know, Tom Weaver and Greg Mank and all those guys, I'm, I would imagine they would be salivating to be able to talk do a talk about something like Ghost of Frankenstein or or do a commentary on Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. But, well,
1: that's what I've often wondered, yeah. is because there aren't, I mean, there isn't a commentary track on House of no, Dracula no, or House of no. Frankenstein, and I understand... I could stand there toe to toe with you and complain about those films, mm-hmm. uh, complain about the the things in them that I don't yeah. think work or the things yeah. that could have been yeah. done better or some right. casting mistakes or some odd odd choices that don't really add up in the end. But at the same mm-hmm. time, yeah. I don't know necessarily that there are. I think I, that, I think that's been one of the problems, and I think mm-hmm. that's what I think that's something that a, a show like what we're going to try to do here mm-hmm. is, in a small way, address the fact that I think that some of those people and I don't know this I don't I don't know this for a fact I mm-hmm. just think it's true mm-hmm. I think that there's been a perception amongst these people the the serious film historians that if I go in and I defend you know quote unquote defend mm-hmm. house of frankenstein house of dracula um you know the 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 mummy's curse whatever mm-hmm. if I do that then my cachet Goes, you know, my, my my credit goes down. My the 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 perception of me as a, a serious film historian or someone who's to be taken mm-hmm. seriously on one, on one level or another goes down. I think that in the past that may have been true. Mm-hmm. That could be. I like I say I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. Maybe Universal isn't is just not willing to pay someone to do the work mm-hmm. to do a commentary track on those films or the, you know the 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 lesser you know the the invisible man sequels or anything yeah. like that maybe yeah. that's the problem maybe yeah. they're just not willing to pay to yeah. have it done that could very well be yeah. and that could very well be because mm-hmm. who, who knows i mean they
2: were we definitely wanted to pay less to make these films in the first place you know the, that's another right. thing too the budget's dropped way off this this film we're talking about tonight invisible man returns actually went it went over budget, budget. Yeah. but it was still about thirty thousand dollars less than what they spent on the first Invisible Man film. Yeah. So, and that was kind of a case with these. So, you know, and that's probably another reason the perception is that people think of them, you know, that these became programmers, they became Saturday matinee fodder, and, and that that the just the care and the money was just not not there for these films.
1: But there are there are reasons to agree with that statement. But like I say, one of the things about digging into these movies. Mm-hmm. Is to point out where that isn't true, where these right. movies shine, right. the 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 elements that uh, that work really well, and honestly, in a lot of these movies, some ideas that if you examine them carefully, you kind of can't believe they tried.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: And uh, they're they even in this movie. Yeah. Uh, this 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 movie's a little bit a little ahead of the curve of. Uh, Dumbing these films down, or or, mm-hmm. or and that, that's probably a wrong way to put that. Um, I was that was then I was going to say infantiling and, mm-hmm. and infantizing. No, that's not that's not what it is, but. The, this is a film that still shows uh, an, a, a level of adult complexity that would later be uh, be extracted from yeah. the scripts for later films mm-hmm. in an attempt to uh, keep them uh, a little bit more kid-friendly so that, that there yeah. wouldn't be uh, as much of a chance for a wandering adult to wonder just what the hell this mm-hmm. you know, was playing to eight-year-olds. But this movie does have mm-hmm. a number of things that... <laughs> we, that that are amusing and that are only amusing to you if you are an adult that has had sex. That
2: <laughs> yes, way. that's yes, that is true.
1: <laughs> so uh, let let's keep that in mind as we go through this movie, and I'll, I will point out a few of my my favorite choice bits, uh, probably with dialogue cues. So, <laughs> All right. morning to you, Miss
0: Manson. Morning. Helen, you can't go on like this, you know, without sleep or anything. You're not being fair to yourself or to Jeffrey. Now, please have something, at least a cup of tea. They must have news by now. Surely the reprieve has come through. Will they'll be short of thought as soon as there's word. Uh, Dr. Griffin is asking for you, Miss Manson. Have you any news? None. Mr. Cobb, isn't a summary of hope left for him? There must be hope. There has to be. I don't see what more we can do. I've talked to dozens of influential people in London, old friends of whom I've never asked a favor before. With the Home Secretary, it seems
1: impossible that he shouldn't at least grant a postponement.
0: Richard, please try.
1: Sir Jeffrey Radcliffe, who's played by Vincent Price, has been accused of slaying his brother, Sir Michael, and is condemned to die on the gallows. When the hour of execution strikes, unfortunately or fortunately, he vanishes from his prison cell, which, of course, means the cops are just mm-hmm. freaking out. Mm-hmm. Scotland Yard Inspector Sampson, played by the great character actor Cecil Kellaway correctly deduces that the fugitive's friend and his last visitor in his jail cell, Dr. Frank Griffin, brother of the late Jack Griffin, the Invisible Man from the first film, injected the prisoner with the invisibility serum. Reunited with his fiancée, Helen Manson, played by Nan Gray, the now-invisible Radcliffe realizes his only hope is to find the real murderers or murderer before the mind-altering effects of the drug overtakes him and drives him to madness. Mm-hmm. Now, before we go any further into a plot description and start talking about some specific details, mm-hmm. um, I love the cast completely. Oh, they're great. Yeah, there, there's a great, very nice. There, there's a great joy. Um, mm-hmm. I'm just going to get something puerile and, and perhaps <laughs> childish out of the way to begin with. Nan, okay. Nan Gray is a woman who it took me a second viewing. It took me a, 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 a second viewing just this past week to figure out why I was so attracted to this woman. Mm-hmm. And what it is is, and it, this is this is childish. I know her facial structure, her mouth, her nose, everything mm-hmm. about her face reminds me incredibly much of a girlfriend from my early twenties. She looks just <laughs> like her, and it's been. It, I'm no longer a young man, people, and I can tell you right now that while watching the film and going, why am I so aroused by this woman... And there's another part of my mind going, because she's a pretty woman in a film, it's what, what they're supposed to do to you, that's part of it. And there's another part of it, no, it's worse than that, it's different. <laughs> and so when I finally twigged that, I, I wasn't I wasn't well. even bright enough to keep it to myself. I was so excited, I blurted it out, even with my girlfriend in the room. Oh, that's smart. <laughs> now, luckily, she's a forgiving woman, and it doesn't yeah. matter, because, you know, that's that's... Decades ago, and far be it for me to to be crazy enough to like try to look that woman up on the internet no, or Facebook a, and and try to see if she's still. You hear the still... keyboard clicking right now? Yeah, no, 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 I would I would never do that. But nevertheless, <laughs> I love this cast. I'm gonna get I'm gonna get back on track. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite things in this movie is uh, uh, C- uh, Cecil Kellaway, the oh, man yeah. who plays Inspector Sam- Inspector mm-hmm. Sampson. He is a joy. He's been a, a, in a blue bajillion films, and mm-hmm. he is. I, I it's whenever I picture him, no matter what the role I picture him with this big grin on his face. Mm-hmm. And part of that is because of the way he plays the roles. And part of it is just his face just seems natural. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. sure that when he died, he died and he just, his face fell into that, <laughs> that expression, this, this bemused yeah. look of, of, mm-hmm. of, of humor um, mm-hmm. spread across his face. And he's so good in this movie that it's kind of mesmerizing to watch him go through this because it's one of those characters. It's one of those police characters in the movie yeah. who seems pretty confident from mm. Jump Street that he is going to figure this out.
2: Yeah, because he's yeah. just
1: too smart to not figure it out.
2: Well, as soon as he hears the name Griffin, you can yeah. see the wheels begin to turn. But he plays it close to the vest so nicely for a while. But we kind of really eventually realize he figured out very quickly what was going on.
1: Yeah, uh, we should point out that uh, <clears throat> Mister Callaway was in a blue bajillion films. Uh, for decades uh, his, fi- his final credit count is just massive but um, where uh, I really really took note of him and love him is from a later film in the Universal Horrors uh, the, the the first of the uh, 40's mummy movies The Mummy's Hand mm-hmm. where he's just he's just absolutely great in that as a, as a stage mm-hmm. magician yep yeah he but is also, terrific in that but he's also wonderful in Harvey the fantastic yeah. uh, Jimmy which, Stewart movie
2: which is one of my favorite comedies and I've always just absolutely loved him in that he's so good in it
1: but he, but he's also got a great role in uh, the postman always rings twice and uh and Kim <laughs> beast from twenty thousand fathoms mm-hmm. you 've seen this guy oh, yeah. in general you've probably seen this guy in half a dozen things, and he always is just incredibly memorable and I'd forgotten he was in this movie yeah I really I had completely too. forgotten he was in this movie because I think it's probably been mm-hmm. fifteen years since I watched it yeah. Uh, so, when I can spot an actor who 's played a leprechaun in a movie about the Irish, <laughs> well I'm, you know,
2: and you can totally believe it because if there's anything you were going to do if you were going to describe him, you would have to throw in words like impish elfish you know, just yeah. something about his yeah. you know his face and you know his his quirkiness there is, and it? it totally lends itself to he's sort of like this little gnome like kind of character that you know, uh-huh. and uh he's great in this he's the character not only does he play the character great, but the character itself is just very intelligently. Uh-huh. Written, you know the the first time we see him, the things he does, when he comes in with the cigar and he's just casually blowing smoke around him to see if the guy, see if Let's the man is he, standing, yeah. to see if the smoke reveals anybody around him, you know. From while, the very first, say, yeah.
1: while saying outright, yeah, uh, mm-hmm. you know, but one of the first things he does when, mm-hmm. in talking about the, the the very real probability that he knows exactly what's going on here, but he yep. can't prove it, right is he keeps puffing away on a cigar yeah. all the time yeah
2: yeah and making
1: he, sure there's plenty of cigar smoke anywhere in the room so that he can get <laughs> and he is yeah. if you take note of his actions his his eyes are always roving around the room always yeah. roving around the room because yeah. Yeah. because if he i mean this mm-hmm. is a sequel to the first film that guy yeah. was a murderer yeah flat out yeah. and as far as he knows this guy who he now mm-hmm. is, he's now convinced is invisible because mm-hmm. of his friend's help He's also a murderer, so he's not going to get caught. He's not going to get caught out by this guy. Mm -hmm. Well, before we even get started, we can see that this movie is definitely changing things around from the first movie. We're starting off with a character who we don't know anything about who's been accused Mm -hmm. of murder, Mm -hmm. and yet everything about the movie and about the way the plot is set in motion tells us this man is probably innocent. Mm -hmm. So immediately, what are we in the middle of? We're in the middle of a murder mystery. Yep. So, this is a this really is primarily a murder mystery tinged with science fiction elements. Mm-hmm. And that to me is just fine because yeah. I happen to love murder mysteries. Yeah. And honestly, while I love murder mysteries, I'm not going to ever really claim that this one's too hard to figure
2: out. No, it it doesn't really go too long before it's, you know, pretty obvious. Yeah. Who's who is the real villain? Uh, but then it becomes more of a suspense kind of, you know, right? How is he going to? How is our invisible hero going to clear his name and and all
1: that? Or is our or is invisible he, hero
2: going to go nuts? Is he going to go crazy before yeah, he gets? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and
1: and th- that becomes because a real the,
2: question. Yeah, because Universal films, I mean, we're used to the monster, whether sympathetic or unsympathetic, usually dying at the end. And right. and uh, you know, so in this case, even though he, we know him to be innocent, so he doesn't necessarily. Have to play by the rules of the code, which is you know the which is that you must be punished. You know, character does anything against the law, he must be punished in some way. So we don't know, but we don't know what they're going to go for at the end. We may still get a tragic ending. We're not sure, you
1: know. Exactly. So that's 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 one of the that's one of the neater things about this movie is that we're in the middle of a murder mystery with science Mm -hmm. fiction elements, and although I mean, granted, the running time is short enough so Mm -hmm. that it. It's not difficult to get. It's not. First of all, not not as short
2: as some of these films will become. (laughs) No, no, no.
1: (laughs) But it doesn't stretch itself past the point where you're wondering why the hell are we still here? Right.
2: Oh, the pace. I love the pace of this film. It's very nicely. It's very brisk. Very nicely paced.
1: I will say that there are a couple of moments when I felt it could have been a little quicker. But honestly, they're doing they're they're doing enough to keep Mm -hmm. me interested Mm -hmm. um, that I don't mind Um, Mm -hmm. whether there's a a neat little uh, you know special effects sequence or. Uh, some some neat acting mm. or some, uh, some uh, kind of uh, minor suspense bit. There's, a, there's enough in this, although uh, I have heard this film described as being uh, rather um, stodgily directed at times. Hmm. Uh, I, I, I feel that that's not necessarily true. And as a matter of fact, my first defense of this film's um, director... Um, I Believe me, I understand there's some, some reasons to have some mm-hmm. complaints about Joe May, the director. Sure. Not the least of which is that he didn't speak English. <laughs> but the, uh, um, the film starts off uh, right after the opening credits... By establishing a really creepy atmosphere, mm. uh, this is almost undeniably at the beginning a movie that is trying to get you in the fi- it, it, to make you feel like you're in a universal horror. Exactly. Film. Yeah. Even though the films the film itself and its plot line isn't yeah. really a universal horror plot line,
2: it has that kind of feel. Well, you know, I'm all about the fog, you know, and and, yeah. and so it's 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 still kind of set in that sort of universal. Never, never land where you the town sort of everybody sort some people speak in a British accent and some speak an American accent and you well, know, you're not really, yeah. and and you still, and and even though it looks like a modern industrial town by day, by night it suddenly becomes a fog shrouded cemetery. You know, and it's just, you know, <laughs> you, you still feel kind of like you're in that universal, that sort of universal where where are we really in time well, and in the world. Both both are these we,
1: first, I can't remember the second. I mean, the, I can't remember the next two films, but these first mm-hmm. two definitely take place in England, yeah, somewhere yeah. just vaguely. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming, you know, maybe Cornwall. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, kind I mean, like like co- of There's a coal mines. I don't really yeah. know where we are, and I don't know that it really. Matter just you know yeah. identifying it as a a you know a town mm-hmm. with a coal mine is this major industry mm-hmm. whether or not that places it in a particular region of England or not I don't mm-hmm. know mm-hmm. but yes mm-hmm. a number of the actors are British a number of them are decidedly not yeah, right yes yeah. especially <laughs> my lost love Nan Gray yeah. who yeah. Um, does, doesn't she doesn't stand out as being incredibly American in mm-hmm. the way she speaks mm-hmm. but um, then again. Neither does Vincent Price. Both right. of them have enough of the stage actor, I think, training mm. in them mm. that it makes for uh, it. Do, it doesn't sound odd to have the two of them necessarily uh, running around and pretending to be British. So, right. Um, although it does, it, it is it is quite interesting when we get a few. Uh, British character actors, and they're playing small roles, like uh, like the uh, the jailers who are trying. <laughs> yes. t- talking about this guy just disappearing is yeah. like. Then they suddenly
2: become really, really. Those know, guys
1: are really British. No, yeah, <laughs> <Yes. laughs> But.
2: Well, the the first uh, the way you talk about the film getting off to an interesting like the beginning of the film start the way it starts is uh, I think also. The whole first scene has to give us a lot of exposition. It's yeah. a scene, that, and I think that it's very well written, much better than it could have been. the The servants we basically have the servants in Radcliffe Manor all talking about the impending execution, and again, that is a scene that could have been very clunky. But I think that it manages to unfold fairly naturally to be a scene that has to give you so much exposition, and agree, that I kind agree. of makes me want to give credit to. We should go ahead and mention it's written by. Kurt the Yes.
1: Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite writers from that mm. period and mm. the man who is responsible for the existence of the film Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman yes. because, yes. because he was hitting on a woman and had to <laughs> quickly come up with a reason why he was in a place in the studios where he was not supposed to be. <laughs> At least that's the legend. Yes, I've heard that. Um, but... Kurt Ciatomac is responsible for writing a whole lot of films that I absolutely love and some that are complete embarrassments. But uh, one of the great joys of a Kurt Ciatomac script is there's going to be some thought put into it. Of course, he was a German writer who was brought, who was brought over here, or who, shall we say, uh, fled mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> fled yeah. Germany, as so many other people fled Germany because of the rise of the Nazi Party. But if you start taking a run through uh, his, his credits, you realize just what this man wrought as far as uh, the universal horror films and just horror films in general. He created the Wolfman.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, he is the man responsible for the screenplay for that, that, mm-hmm. that wonderful little bit of, of, of uh, silly poetry that yeah. kind of got a little bit altered in the mm-hmm. sequels. Mm-hmm. Um, he wrote uh, So he wrote The Wolfman. He wrote The, the Invisible Agent. He wrote Frankenstein meets The Wolfman. He for um, Val Luton, he wrote I walked with a zombie. Yeah. Uh, he came up with the story for Son of Dracula. He wrote. Um, well, he adapted uh, the the story for uh, the film The Climax in 1944, which is something you need to check out if you haven't. Came up with the story for House of Frankenstein. He wrote uh, the Beast with Five Fingers, which is a film that I, I highly recommend. I mm-hmm. uh, wrote the Magnetic Monster. <clears throat> Bright of the Gorilla. Okay, now we're really now, getting yeah, into it. Yeah, now, now we're gonna, yeah. creature with the atom brain, which is a movie that I love, but uh, I can't can't, can't de- really defend. defend. <laughs> hey, he wrote the screen story for Earth versus the Flying Saucers. Yeah, and, and here's the thing: uh, he, I still haven't read. Uh, I mean, he wrote Donovan's Brain, which has been turned into a movie like three times, yeah. three times officially, right? God knows how many times unofficially. <laughs> yeah, but I still haven't been able to find a copy to just get just get my hand on a copy. I never read, read it either. Yeah. And I want to read his uh, his novel Hauser's Memory from the late sixties. It's supposed to be yeah. fantastic. But um Kurt Siotomac is one of the reasons why the universal horror films went in the directions that they, they went mm-hmm. in the forties. Yeah. And um, that's all to the good in my opinion. Yeah. Where his finger so. where you see mm. his fingerprints, you see mm. some uh you see some qualities that uh, you wish some of the other films probably had. This film, uh, the reason he worked on this film is because of the director Joe yep. May, yep. and there will be some uh, there will be some harsh words said about mm. <laughs> about yes. him by other other actors, but quite honestly, he's the reason that Kersi Automac wrote this one, and probably because of the strength of the the work that he that was felt he did mm-hmm. on this is what got him other projects as well so more yeah. pa- you know more power to Joe May for that yeah. particular and, choice well
2: and also the other thing too is when he was still in Germany uh, he uh, the other thing that he deserves credit for is that he gave Fritz Lang his start in cinema yeah. So yes, you're right. Joe May was, was <laughs> people had a lot of problems with him. I think he was kind of the classic. Uh, sounds like the classic Eric von Stroheim, John Purse wearing uh, dictatorial German director, but uh, yeah, who yeah. did not speak English. But uh, but uh, yeah, he at least gives needs credit for that.
1: Well, I think it's funny. Uh, Vincent Price is one of the few people who worked on the film that reported that he didn't really have any problems with director Joe May. Um, mainly yeah. because uh, Vincent Bryce knew uh, knew a fair amount of German, yeah. and so was able to communicate with him very effectively, yeah. which I'm sure made it a lot easier for him because of all the all the, the bizarre work that he had to do to, to get the special effects sequences filmed. Yeah. But uh, he's really the only one who didn't have some you know harsh words, especially for some of the. Well, let's just say that Joe May was best described, or nicely described, as a methodical director. <laughs> yeah. Um, other people might say, a jerk. <laughs> and uh, he didn't endear himself to the front off, front office, and he didn't do him, himself any, more, any real favors, as you might describe his temperament being mm, foul. <laughs> so there's a story of him being uh, that um, a studio executive arrived on the soundstage one day while they were making this movie, and uh, May was, for whatever reason, hacked off that this executive was there, and told him that I'll, I'm not going to work. We're not going to film anything until you're on, until you leave the set. Uh, the executive uh, kind of asked him why, and he says either you leave or I leave. So the executive said, well, then I guess that you're going to leave. That's okay with me. <laughs> and so he so he essentially called. Yeah joe may's bluff yeah and uh, the director had to uh, essentially kind of you know take his hat in hand and go to the big wigs and go mm. i apologize and and mm. essentially not get tossed off the film so that is the kind of guy we're dealing with now mm. i will say that i can understand why if you're comparing the way this film was directed to the original film yeah you might you yeah I would I would prefer James Whale's acting I mean mm-hmm. I'm sorry James Whale's directing style mm-hmm. above Joe May's but I think that at times Joe is, Joe May is going out of his way to try to ape what mm-hmm. some of the things that Whale mm-hmm. did mm-hmm. to provide some visual continuity between mm-hmm. the two movies he's no yeah. fool he's yeah. making a sequel he's not yeah. an idiot so mm-hmm. he he's he's got to know that you can't make something that feels so completely different that people are going to dismiss it right um, but I think maybe we should probably get back to the the plot. i
2: yeah, I just say the last thing I want to say about Joe May was I did think it was kind of funny that uh, he apparently after he got out of filmmaking he started a restaurant, but didn't do very well in that too because uh, apparently he he would tell his customers what they should order. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, apparently uh, always a, once a director always a director. So <laughs> no, you will not like those. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Dumb coffee. <cough. Yeah>, so <laughs> my lord. <laughs>
1: Oh man, Germans are trouble. Yes.
3: Okay.
0: They are. <laughs> Answer it, Helen. Hello, Jeff. Sorry, Helen. I couldn't come to the lab. I'm at Frank's house. <laughs> of course, the place is guarded, but little things like that don't stop me any longer. <laughs> Tell Frank this house of his is chilly. I'm going to get into his best suit of clothes. Just a minute. He's at your house. He wants some of your clothes. Tell him to go ahead. Help yourself, dear. I will. You and Frank, come over here. We're going to celebrate. Celebrate?
1: Well, Sir Radcliffe's suspicions are aroused when Willie Spears, a slovenly and usually drunk night watchman, is promoted to a ranking position in the family's mining operations. Now, Willie Spears is played by Alan Napier. Yeah, yeah. For a lot of us, Alan Napier will always be... The man who answered the bat phone. <laughs> Yes, he was Alfred on the 1966 television mm-hmm. series of Batman. That's where almost all of us mm. as yeah, kids yeah. knew him from. But that's not all he did. Oh no,
2: that's uh, that's uh, this character is about as far from Alfred as you're going to get.
1: Yeah, no kidding. Alan Napier was in a lot of movies. Yes, uh, he I mean, he, I mean, he, this man worked with Hitchcock. Um, later on, he was in some Night Gallery episodes. He worked. He, he was on the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. He was in the Loved One. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> yeah, oh god, that's a great <laughs> that <movie>. completely crazy <laughs>
1: film. Um, he did a voice for Disney's film The Sword and the Stone. Mm-hmm. He was in the great Roger Corman uh, Poe film The Premature Burial. Um, One of my favorites, and if you catch me in the mm-hmm. right mood with the right amount of alcohol in me, I'll <laughs> tell you it's my favorite of the series. Mm-hmm. And Buck, everyone's thought process <laughs> on that one. He was in Journey to the Center of the Earth, Island of Lost Women. Oh, man, Alan Napier. You know, my favorite mm-hmm. role, though is when he plays the albino head priest in the mole people. Oh my gosh, I had forgotten that one. I had forgotten
2: that one. (laughs) I think I
1: think him playing the the high priest in the mole people is the first time I ever saw him in something other than the Batman TV series. And I was like, that's Alfred, that's That's Alfred. He's got no facial hair, but that's Alfred. Oh man, which is which is which is sad to be able to say that, considering this man, the man was in. I mean, he played. You know, he was oh, in he's Julius Caesar that, yeah. and and uh, you know, uh,
2: well, unfortunately, The Strange
1: Door and The Great Caruso yeah. and a bazillion other films, but. What do I remember him for? Yeah. The mole people in Batman.
2: So. Well, I mean, he's, he's, let's face it, he's, he's not the only actor who uh, who will forever be remembered, mainly for being in the Batman TV series, who deserved <laughs> better, like Cesar Romero, for instance. Yeah, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah, he deserved better than that. <laughs> Although now I associate Cesar Romero with that bizarre Toho film, too, where he plays oh, the villain. Oh, gosh, um, yes. Um, oh, darn it. I can't remember the name. Um Oh, this is killing
2: me. Was it the X no no no, 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 it's a Toho film. That's it's right. A it was a, yes, it oh, was. Uh, is it a
1: Toho film? Yes, it's completely insane. It's com- very juvenile. Uh, yeah, forget it. Uh, yes. We'll come back. We'll, my yes. my, my we'll, memory. God save me. My memory is toast. All right, so Vitza Price's character um, forces the Spears character's car off the road and confronts him. Spears well he, he he messes with Spears' brother oh, musically yes, <laughs> convincing convincing him that he's the ghost the, mm. the, the, the ghost of himself and uh, the, the, and and just terrifies him horribly shoves his face into a mud puddle <laughs> Spears confesses that he witnessed Radcliffe's cousin Richard um Bludgeon his brother Michael to death Now, uh, Richard Cobb, the the cousin that's being accused of being the murderer Mm -hmm. here, is played by Sir Cedric Hardwick. Mm -hmm. So Cobb supposedly paid off spears with a promotion to ensure his silence. Yes. Now I love the fact that the reason that immediately Vincent Price's character thinks something's up with this guy because he was a he was yeah. a crappy night watchman <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. to begin with. <laughs> How the hell is he running things now? He was right. he wasn't he wasn't even worth keeping around as a night watchman. <laughs> sure. And I and I love that that's that's one of the the, the things I like about uh, uh a, a, a Kurt Siotomak's script is that you if you wa if you wa- if you look at uh what some of the things that he does as a writer over time, some of those same things is that the, if there's a mystery, if there's something that a character needs to find mm. out, it's through the fact that he knows the characters that he's dealing with to an extent that when they do something that's out of when, when they do something that's not mm. normal for them, that's out of character for them, that does, that doesn't ring true. That usually is what leads him to the mm. information that he needs to discover what is the truth. Yeah. and yeah. so that once again is happening here. Mm-hmm. Well, Vincent Price's character, uh, Radcliffe, binds and gags Spears and then sets out after his cousin Cobb. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, despite a heavy police guard uh, trying to guard Cobb, yeah. um, our man Jeffrey gets to him and brings him face-to-face with Spears, who quickly incriminates him. And that's actually a really fun scene because I think, yes, I think, I think Napier and Hardwick are acting their asses yeah, off. And it, it really could did. not have been easy considering no. that, although Vincent Price is there, He's draped in black velvet yeah. to, for the special yeah. effects to work, so you're not going to yeah. be able to even see the man's face. You're just going off. You're just going off uh, the mm. man's voice and the, yeah. and the physicality of what's going on. And those two actors really carry themselves well in that scene. I think um, Cobb uh, manages to kill Spears and escapes, but Radcliffe chases him through uh, the village streets. And this is another really great sequence because yes, it is. by using some simple. Simple mm-hmm. tricks; mm-hmm. they they make it appear as if an invisible man is running through crowds of people. It's it, it's simple, but had to rely on some serious
2: timing from a lot of yep. extras, and they do a fantastic job. Yep. All the people being pushed and shoved out of the way. I mean, they really got these people. Really, just came through with yep. selling
1: this. It's it's very well done. Well, uh, they the he makes his way to the uh, the mining. They call it a, a colliery. Mm-hmm. which is uh the which is the the mining concern the mm-hmm. the 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 uh mine set into the hillsides where they're they're digging out the coal and uh our invisible man uh pins cobb to the moving coal cart on the mining escalator but a lucky shot fired by our man Simpson or I'm sorry our man Sampson not right. not Homer Simpson <laughs> Inspector Sampson <laughs> Uh, hits Radcliffe seconds before the coal wagon releases its load, sending Cousin Cobb hurtling to the ground far below. With his dying breath, Cobb confesses the murder of Sir Michael. And that wraps the film up. But that skips over so much juicy detail. Yes, yes.
2: Well let's just talk about right here I I love the thing with I love the thing with the coal car, you know. Yes. Dear, and I'm just wondering, I'd love to know where Kurt Seldomack, at what point in his life, he... Encountered this kind of operation and saw a coal car and just thought, "Oh yeah, I'm using that someday." <laughs> 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 he might not have realized the point it was going to be an Invisible Man movie, but it had to it had to come to him. I'm going to have two guys fight on these coal car that's that's set to release, you know, dump its coal out because it's it's a great it's a great way to contrive a climax there, you know, yep. exciting climax and the demise of the the villain.
1: Well, I I gotta say. That, that that that's that that's an amazing stunt. Whoever the guy is who took that plunge, oh yeah, it's shot from a distance. Yeah, and it's and it's clear that the, the way things are set up, they could very easily have some mm. you know uh, the the cushioning oh, the yeah. cushioning oh, sure, down yeah. down beneath for they got to yeah. fall onto. But that was still a long drop. Yeah, that, that stunt man took, and it's definitely a stunt man. It's yeah. definitely oh, somebody damn. making the plunge. Oh yeah, that was really cool. It was, but. So now we've got the murder. We've got the mm-hmm. we've got we've got the, the murder solved. We know who did this. Mm-hmm. But we've still got an invisible man. Yeah, who's probably going to become crazy. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. now has every Exoluted reason. He's
2: wounded and he's yeah, dying. Yeah. And, yeah, and, and now dying and in wo- crazy invisible. He's, man.
1: Yeah, he's been wounded by the cops. So near death from exposure and loss of blood, our man Jeffrey, wearing a ragged suit stolen from a farmer scarecrow, makes his way to uh, Griffin's clinic now it should be stated that uh, his pal Griffith who uh, injected him with the invisibility serum works at the mine he's he's a Mm -hmm. chemist who works there and that's how uh, that's how they know each other that's how they're very good friends Mm -hmm. and um, so he, he he stumbles into the clinic and Frank administers an emergency transfusion of blood to save his friend's life only to discover that this blood transfusion is the antidote to yeah the drug that turns him invisible. Mm-hmm. Uh, so with his visibility restored, Jeffrey is now a free man. He's reunited with his beloved Helen, mm-hmm. played by Nan
2: Gray. Your ex-girlfriend.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, my ex-girlfriend from 30 years ago. And everything is hunky-dory.
2: Mm-hmm. We do get a happy ending.
1: We do. We, we, we get a happy ending, which is not mm-hmm. something that you might have expected walking into an Invisible Man. And season.
2: Vincent Price wouldn't get a whole lot more of those in his, in <laughs> his, his subsequent career. At this point, he was still obviously being thought of as a leading romantic lead, you know. Yes,
1: yes. And it is a bit of a shock uh, if you get used to uh, our dear Vincent from, uh, say, the 50s and the 60s to see him this young. I mean, this is a movie Mm. that was shot in late 1939. This is only, I think, his, like, third film, third, fourth?
2: One thing about Vincent Price is he had, you know, he had certainly paid his dues on stage. When it came to movies, he did not toil and toil in a lot of bit parts before he started getting the meaty roles. He actually was Kind of a, a life that was very blessed in many ways. Uh, that was another one where his lucky star kind of shone on him as he really got major roles just almost right from the off the bat. Uh, well, I, when think, it came to films. I
1: think his his stage work had you know his 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 reputation for yeah. stage work for oh, exactly. and Victoria Regina and a few mm-hmm. other things had really stood him in good stead. Yeah, so when he started getting those offers from Hollywood, it wasn't much of a stretch mm-hmm. for them to go ahead and start seeing him in that way. And he, I mean. Well, let's point out this is a weird. I mean, mm-hmm. he gets he gets you know starring credit in this movie, yeah. and he is in a lot of the movie, but you yeah. never see his face until the final yeah. few minutes. Yeah, just like with Claude Rains. But mm-hmm. this movie pulls an even bigger stunt mm. by never you never see his face, not even in, a, in photograph. a photograph.
2: That's right. You see Claude Rains's picture in a photograph, right. but not 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 Vincent Price's. Right.
1: So he has a few hard things to pull off here, which is acting under all these bandages or. Mm. While being invisible, yeah. So all he's being, all he's able to do really is to uh, act with his voice, mm-hmm. you know, emo, emote vocally. Really, mm-hmm. that's all he all yeah. he can do for long stretches until he's wrapped up in the bandages, and then he can do physical. He can do physical things. He can, he can do the, all the 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 posturing and the, the 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 physical movements that will get get across certain things. Mm-hmm. But he still can't use his face. Mm-hmm. Which, for an actor, has got to be murder, especially yeah. when you're talking about screen acting, because that's what it's all about. You're, mm-hmm. you're communicating a lot with your eyes, and he can, at no point in this film, until mm-hmm. the final couple of minutes, ever use his eyes to, to give you an impression of what's mm-hmm. going through the man's head, which is incredibly difficult for an actor.
2: Yeah, and I think he's great in the scene, uh, the, the scene where he's kind of really almost at the high point of his hysteria, where he's talking to the, 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 the way he's talking to uh, uh, the uh, uh, Griffin's uh, yeah the scientists. To, 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 to Griffin Griffin and to and, your, uh, and to, to, uh, to Helen and uh, um, because he's at the table the way that he's uh he's he's talking and he's kind of like rocking back and forth in that chair and kind of fishing oh, and yeah. he's so full of energy and it, he conveys it very again physically like you said without being able to do anything with with facial expressions there uh-huh. he's uh and he's great because he's wavering right between that kind of thing of of Kind of half kidding with them, but got kind of, you know, that great line he has about you know you could use this to do good if you're so inclined or you know just, <laughs> yeah, if you,
1: you're know, so you, just, you know well that's one of the great things is that I love I'm a big fan uh, I'm one of the few <laughs> not a lot of us around I don't guess but I'm a huge fan of old radio dramas mm-hmm. of uh, the stuff yeah. from the uh, the 20s 30s 40s 50s 60s all the way up through the 70s where it was theater of the mind, man. You, mm-hmm, yeah. you're, you're only getting it across with audio. So you know, outside of uh, sound effects and music, what you're, what you're relying on are actors who can really sell emotion and sell story and sell character through the power of their voice and through the, yeah. the nuanced use of their voice. And uh, Vincent Price did a lot of those kind of things a lot of great radio shows uh he even had one uh, one of his own uh, that starred him as himself called uh, the price of fear mm. which is a fa- which is a fantastic show and he was always very good like i say i think a lot of that comes mm. from the stage training oh yeah of being able to get across a lot you know depending on the quality mm. of the script of course but as an yeah. actor he sells this stuff uh, he's always, you know, honestly, uh, I'm more than willing to uh, stand stand up there and say, yeah, of course, Vincent Price was a ham. He was one of the mm. best hams in the world yes, yes. because there's nothing wrong with that. That no, style of no. acting has its place, and Vincent Price was an excellent purveyor of oh, ham. Absolutely. This man sliced it thick or thin, depending uh. on what you needed, and he was mm. very good. Mm. And he he's called upon to be a bit of a radio actor in this yes, movie. He is.
2: Okay, but... Now that's a perfect segue into something I really wanted to get into here about this is we all you can't talk about Vincent Price without talking about the voice. Right. But his voice in this film, have you have you noticed how in his first few films, how different his voice is from the classic Vincent Price voice? Well, I mean, I,
1: I, I know there's a difference, but it's always just—I've always just thought it was because he was a bit younger.
2: Yeah, I—I mean, I've, I've, well, and it, maybe it is, but I felt like it changed. I feel like he hadn't quite discovered, and because he's not playing as many villainous roles at this point here, I don't right. think he had quite discovered that silky register oh, that we've. And I was wondering because okay. I was thinking, like, am I just because? And I know a lot of it has to do with you know you're you're not seeing the face when you're hearing the voice, of, but I've I've noticed it in this and a couple of other of his earliest films, like even in the. Um, the one before it, he did Tower, Tower of London, London yeah. thinking like this is thinking like it, it's okay. You can hear Vincent price in there, but it's, it's not that Vincent price voice, you know, it's not mm-hmm. that. And, and I know, and uh, anyway, what I want to do is I just to get a kind of second opinion to say, am I just imagine this? I, I I went to our friend, uh, Dr. Gangreen, uh, Nashville's physician of fright, horror host who has done an <laughs> amazing, just completed an incredible series of videos uh, where he basically covered every single Vincent price film um, and did a great job on him, and it's out there on YouTube under the fantastic films of Vincent Price. He's yeah. uh, a, a real labor of love. He come, went over several years there and hit every Vincent Price film. So I wanted to get his opinion on on uh, to see if if he kind of noticed that too, and or knew. And and I wondered if he had ever heard anything about the voice. Yeah, like maybe Dave, even like had ever heard any Vincent Price or somebody writing about him, make like a notice uh, or make mention of of that. Yes, there's something consciously different he's doing or he just hadn't discovered that vincent price voice yet but anyway here's what uh, larry underwood aka uh, dr gangrene came back with he says well he says he says i think he was just young and inexperienced at this point it was only his fourth film he said it's the same in the first one uh the first one which is service deluxe and then also in the private lives of elizabeth and essex for sure said he would very he would pretty quickly refine the voice by the mid-40s at least unless he was doing an accent, Uh, he said he did several accents, never very well in those early days, Uh, he says, I remember a really terrible French accent, I think it was in a royal scandal, just dreadful, but certainly by the time he did Song of Bernadette in 1943 and Laura in 1944, he had that Vincent delivery that we all know and love, so I'd say it was really just those first few films where his St. Louis roots were showing more before he refined his vocal delivery. Yeah, I can see that. No, I, I can think see like that. maybe he just. But I think as he got into the more villainous roles, and I think he just. I think in this film, he's the hero, and he's trying to sound more peppier and and more like the good guy, you know. And I think yeah. as he became the more sinister, then he sort of discovered that... you know that that <laughs> drop, drop
1: that voice down a bit. Yeah, and
2: and uh, and, and,
1: sl- and also slow as delivery now. exactly yeah exactly
2: yeah. And uh, but also uh, uh, Dr. Gangreen went on to point out something else here that I had never uh, thought about he says I always thought if Vincent hadn't left Universal for 20th Century Fox in 1941 he'd have been cast as the doctor in the next Universal Frankenstein film uh, he said, Universal yeah, were maybe. certainly grooming him as a horror star, which would have meant he'd be casting Ghost of Frankenstein in the role played by Cedric Hardwick, who is, of course, Invisible Man Returns. Could you imagine that film with Vinny in that role? And that got me thinking about it. I never thought about that before, is is what would Universal have done with Vincent Price had he not left for 20th Century Fox? you think about all those films that came after what roles he might have gotten. I'm sitting there thinking, like, gosh, would he have gotten... Son of Dracula instead of Lon Chaney Jr. I mean, we just don't know, like, where have, what would they have done with him? But that's interesting to speculate. I'd never thought about that before. Well,
1: I've often wondered <coughs> if, if he would have ended up playing uh, not just Dracula, but um, mm. I, I, would, I would have thought he might have ended up playing um, some of the roles that John Carradine ended up playing. Yeah. But honestly, where my mind has gone in the in, in the past uh, kind of as a what-if for, mm. uh, for Vincent Price because famously he didn't really start becoming the horror icon that we know until the early 50s right, when, he, when he did. House of Wax yeah. things like that so yeah. what my mind always jumps to almost immediately is uh, why wasn't Vincent Price tapped to be in some of those Val and RKO pictures Yeah, yeah. Uh, because it's so easy for me to picture him in uh, I Walked With a Zombie Oh yeah. or uh, just imagine him in The Seventh Victim or anything like yeah. that yeah. there's a there's a there's a quality that Price had that I think would have lent perfectly to, to those films and their mood and yeah. uh, he might have played the
2: Doctor and the Body Snatchers opposite yeah. Boris Karloff. What would exactly. that have been like? Yeah. I mean, even though Henry Daniel's great, but I mean, what would that have been like to have had those two and Legosi, all three in that all film? The same would have been film. amazing. Right. Yeah.
1: And so there's a there's a part of me that that's where my mind has always gone Wasn't as you? a what yeah. if. Yeah. It, yeah. W- would be those Val Luton RKO yeah. pictures.
3: Um, I can see that. Yeah. But
1: yeah, Vincent Vincent Price, I mean, neither of us are going to, I mean, uh, the, we're, if we were to sit here and just try to come up with our 10 favorite yeah. Vincent Price yeah. films, We'd be, you know, yeah. it, it'd be a damn long conversation, yeah. a podcast into itself, mm. but the, the the joy of seeing him on screen is always there, even when he's just in a bit role, or even when he's doing something that honestly seems a bit beneath him, which mm. happened often enough in mm. you know the last few years of his career, mm. but the joy of watching him on screen is, it's, it's always there, even at this young stage, mm-hmm. and I have to say, the oddest thing about this film, as far as being a Vincent Price fan, is is when we finally see his face going, "Holy shit, he's a baby!" Yeah, I mean, oh, yeah. this guy's a kid. Yeah. What the yeah. hell's going on? Exactly. It was a. Bit, it was. A, it really was a bit of a shock mm-hmm. to realize. Oh man, yeah, that's right. This was made in nineteen thirty nine, released in nineteen forty. He was a child. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. But he's uh, he's he's fantastic. At this. Yeah. He's always he is.
0: fantastic. He is. <laughs> You should have seen them searching for me, Frank. Smoke bombs and gas masks and the fish nets. They must have thought I was a herring. And I marched straight through them with Helen, took her politely out to the car. Stop the old boy. Don't forget the wolves are prowling outside. Yes, you know, Frank, I'm beginning to get a new perspective on this crawling little animal known as man. Why, a dog or a cat or a bird is cleverer than any human. They sense me immediately. But these shrewd detectives of yours take away one of man's senses and you render him helpless. Jeff. You don't really think Richard could have killed me? Could have. He did. I have proof of it. <laughs> Dear old Inspector Sampson, <laughs> He's turned out to be my best assistant. He's keeping Richard prisoner for me. Until I'm ready for him. And Richard's boyfriend, Spears, is anxiously awaiting me at his home. Does Sampson know that Cobb and Spears are mixed up together in this? No, not yet. Then why not produce the evidence? Give Samson the information and you'll be free. Free? I am free. I've never been more free in my life. You know, you know, being invisible has distinct advantages. It gives one a sense of power that's exciting. Power for good, if you're so inclined, or should you feel perverse, for evil. You hold the balance and decide which way life shall go. No one can stop you. No one can touch you. You don't need any infantile little samsons to carry out your will. (laughs) You're much greater than any of them. Rather a magnificent idea to play with, isn't it? More wine, Frank.
1: Okay, before we get too far away from him, I wanted to point out that uh Kurt Seyatmach was kind of amazing. And uh I just wanted to say that one of my favorite quotes from him was from later in his life uh when he was talking about uh, I think it was an interview with yeah. Uh, Tom. Tom uh, yeah, yeah, Tom Weaver, Tom Weaver. I think I think it was an interview with him where he was talking about how in his later years before he passed away, uh he was kind of retired, but he continued to write and lecture about horror movies. And it allowed him to travel, and he really he really seemed to enjoy his later years in life. And there was this great quote from Kurt Siotomak. He said, uh, Today nobody lives better than I do. I have an estate, fifty acres overlooking the mountains, and every night I say Heil Hitler, because without the son of a, that son of a bitch, huh. I wouldn't be in Three Rivers, California. I'd still be in Berlin. <laughs>
2: <laughs> wow, that's great. <laughs>
1: Uh, <laughs> I think that's just awesome. Is
2: I awesome. hated
1: the son of a bitch, <laughs> yes. but because of him, I'm yeah. in mean California.
2: <laughs> so if the question ever comes to, did Hitler ever do any one damn good thing? That now we now know. <laughs> yeah, as far as Curtzy Adamax is
1: concerned, thank God I ran. Yes, that son yes. Of as bitch.
2: Universal yeah. horror fans, we actually owe a little bit to Adolf Hitler. That's that's just that's kind of disturbing. But <laughs> uh, well,
1: something else uh, before we get too far away from from, from from talking about this movie, I did want to talk about how much I love the score. Yeah, man, Uh, so good. I I, I absolutely love the opening theme, Mm -hmm. and from what Mm -hmm. uh, from what I've been able to learn, the opening uh, theme music, uh, which I uh, I uh, opened our discussion of the film with, was original to this. This was this was an original piece written for this, but it was used in other films later Mm -hmm. on. And as a matter of fact, was re-recorded with uh, sometimes with different instruments. Mm uh to be used in a couple of different films in the in the next 10 to 15 years and uh that's why it may feel a little familiar to you even if you've never seen this movie before you yeah. come to this and you hear this the 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 uh the opening theme mm. and think there's something that rings rather familiar you may have seen it you or her I'm sorry you may have heard it used mm. in another film in the future yeah But uh, I think the score is fantastic. Uh, There are two credited uh, music by names, and and both of them are legendary, Frank Skinner and Hans Salter, and both of them have a list of credits about a mile long. And even if you take into account the fact that that's because a lot of the music that they wrote for specific films then got later reused in other movies, Mm. and therefore their name would be connected in an uncredited fashion after the fact, once you start researching where the music originally came from. The number of, of scores that they wrote, the number of pieces of music that they wrote for film, is astonishing for both of them, and and both of them have a huge body of work that's well worth diving into. If you're a film Absolutely. music, if you're a film music aficionado, let yeah. me recommend both uh, Frank Skinner and Hans Salter. They're they're amazing. Now, as for other things in the movie that are worth taking note of, um, one of the things that um, we may have mentioned earlier, which was. Uh, there are some uh, similarities in this film uh, from the original. They they did try to hold over a few things to uh, to kind of uh, capitalize on this being a sequel, trying to make it seem a little bit similar to the original film. Mm-hmm. And one of those, which I think is very interesting, is that the the the, the three central characters are kind of the same. As a matter of fact, the four central characters are yeah. kind of the same as in the first movie. Good point. The, the story's different. Yeah, yeah. But if you pay attention to... There some, there's some very easy one-to-one characterizations mm-hmm. between the first film and the second film. And that's quite interesting, even though, like I say, this is a murder mystery. Yeah. And the first film decidedly is not. But at the same time, there's a, uh, a, an interesting attempt to tell a similar type of character arc. Uh, or, or to at least have certain similar character types within this basic structure as we alter it and turn mm. it into a murder mystery rather than just a simple science fiction horror story
2: yeah
1: i am so impressed with some of the special effects in this we talked about the fact that
2: oh me too as
1: good as they were in the 33 film in this there's there were vast improvements in yes. the years <clears> in the in <throat> the years in between and one of the scenes that it is impossible to not take note of... Well, two. One's a small thing and one's a large. One, the big one is the incredibly impressive uh, stealing of the clothing from the Scarecrow yeah, sequence.
2: Yeah, that is great.
1: Which is incredible. And, of course, it's... Uh, it's Vincent Price, and he's mm-hmm. talking to himself the whole yeah. time he's doing it. So it's definitely the actor doing it. This was mm-hmm. this wasn't uh, from from what we're told. This wasn't overdubbed later on. That's definitely the actor mm-hmm. who's covered in black velvet doing this whole thing against a black velvet background, so that the, mm-hmm. the shot can be done properly. Mm-hmm. This is an this is this is an amazing sequence because although you're looking for it. Mm-hmm. I don't see any of the seams that you might expect to see. I don't see any of the kind of sloppy stuff that I remember being in the next two Invisible yeah. Man yeah. movies where there there's a there's – a, you can see something getting in the way,
3: mm-hmm. some
1: kind of crease maybe in the black velvet or something like that, yeah. and so the, it doesn't quite work. But the other one, the small scene of uh, quote-unquote invisibility that really impressed me was – and I went back and watched it a couple of yeah. times – is uh, after um, at the beginning of the film after Vincent Price's character has been made invisible so that he can escape from his jail cell and not be hung, mm-hmm. um, he goes immediately to his his friend's uh, mm. scientific lab. Right. And uh, of course, first thing that the, that his friend has got to do is get a blood sample from him so yeah. that he can start trying to figure out an antidote so that he can, you know, rectify this problem, get him back to visibility and keep him from going insane. Mm-hmm. So there's a there's a, a a little sequence there, where he's taking he's taking blood from him. Now, it's. Flawless because although oh, you, you yeah. can see this this small line where yeah. his arm is and where where the the uh, the doctor character's finger is pressing against his arm, yeah, and it it's delineated but it's still transparent. Yeah. Yeah. And then he sticks in the needle and withdraws blood. But the blood's invisible. He has to yes. do something yeah. to it in a te- he has to yes. do something to it in a test it tube so it. that it's visible so you can work with it. Yeah. But what's wild is while watching that I realized. The actor didn't have to be in that shot at all. I think that whole thing may have been done because he's sticking a syringe into something. I bet you that entire thing was probably just a you know some kind of pole or or, or, yeah. or some kind of uh, you know wooden yeah. rod or something, so that they could actually stick a needle into it mm-hmm. and it not have to be you know therefore yeah. you're not harming the actor, of course. But the, it's just that <clears throat> that small little special effect is so well done I I and know. so flawless, and it's one of those things that. Completely sells everything around oh, it. Yeah. Just by the <clears throat> fact that you get kind of wowed by yeah. the fact they pulled that one off so well. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So, um. I agree. I mean, no matter, you know, no matter what you want to say, the studio's attitude or what people's attitude towards this, these films, the 40s Universal films in the subsequent years have been, and in this case right here, this is one film where I, when they were there on the set, John Fulton and his crew, I mean, and the director too, they. They, they really try, were trying to, to sell this and, and make it impressive and take the time and the detail, the attention to detail in all the scenes. Uh, one scene that impressed me was the, the, uh, where uh, the Dr. Griffin is uh, testing his serum first on the guinea pig there and the way they like, yes. make that little harness that the guinea pig's supposed to be in wiggle like there's something. I mean, they really thought about all these things and did a great job on trying to, trying to pull this off. And, and uh, I tell you, a real proof is how this film, how well these effects how are holding up under uh, HD, under a digital treatment, there because one thing yeah. that we've seen, we've seen it with Godzilla films, we've seen it with with a lot of films that use a lot of wire work. Is that's one of the drawbacks to high definition? Is it's calling more attention to revealing these tricks? But the fact that, and you see some of them in this film, but there's a lot of times where you think you would see it and you don't, and right. even now that really is what really impresses me. You know that that are there's a lot of places where you know they're using wires and you still have to look really really hard to see them.
1: This is as a science fiction film mm-hmm. it's a, it's it's one that's that's got to sell itself mm-hmm. on the strength of its effects mm-hmm. and it it's the seven intervening years mm-hmm. show some improvement and show some real improvement and also mm-hmm. i really I have to say um, this film has not been given to us in high definition yet, uh, at, least well, not yeah, at, not, at least not, not, on, not on Blu-ray. Disc, right, not, not on yeah. not on Blu-ray. Yeah, but I was able to watch it in high definition on one of the cable channels. Mm, uh, mm. So it has been mastered in high def at least for pay cable. I, I watched it on one of the um, what's that retro? I can't yeah. I can't remember which channel it was. It I saw, but it was a it was a it was a high def transfer, and I've got to say the the depth and detail uh mm. it was a real joy to be able to to like pause to pause a lot of the images mm. in here and take a really close look at some of them and it's it's beautiful you're right you're not you're not seeing flaws yeah. in the special effects yeah. even in high no that's amazing and that's Man, this is twenty. This is twenty eighteen. Yeah, uh, that's no. incredible.
2: Well, this is one of the one of the areas where these forties films are benefiting to in high definition more than the thirties films because the restorations they've done on the thirties films have been great. I mean, yeah. what they've did with the Todd Browning Dracula has been great, but yeah. those films still always have certain. You know, there's a certain age to them. You know that that's there's certain flaws inherent. That they're probably never going to be able to totally overcome the forty films. forties films are just popping off the screen in high definition. I mean, they look great. The just that one difference in decade, the preservation of those elements, I think, was as, as, as was obviously some difference in or an improvement in that because of how well those those have held up.
1: Just recently watched the Abbott and Costello film Buck Privates for the for the first time on Blu-ray, mm. and. You want to talk about? I mean, it's it's one of those instances where this is just a, a comedy musical. It's yeah. not. Yeah. This isn't. You know, I don't consider this to be some kind of great film. It's no. not. It's it's not even one of my favorite. You know, Abbott and Costello mm-hmm. films from mm-hmm. the period. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Uh, watching this thing yeah. uh, on Blu-ray. Was kind of mesmerizing just from the point of view of watching it mm-hmm. in high death. Yeah, yeah. And you're right; those those 40s films, um, by virtue of uh, just the advancing film technology, different film mm-hmm. stock, and mm-hmm. some of the processes being used, and, and mm-hmm. the, the different lighting schemes being used, as you know, as they're as they're aiming for certain you know areas mm-hmm. to be light and gray, and uh, not not that a lot of this wasn't done in the 30s films as well. But we've got another decade where advances have been made between those films and these films. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, they, some of these movies just are astonishing to see. Watching yeah. House of Frankenstein on Blu-ray... Mm. Is revelatory yeah. on just being able to dig into the detail work on some in some of the on some of the sets. Mm. And the same is true in this movie. I was pausing it just to get a look at some of the some of the stuff in the, you know, mm. just the chemical laboratory just to see mm. what all's there because yeah. it's not it's not a big fancy uh Frankenstein style, let's bring the dead back to life kind of thing. But yeah. there's it was still just kind of fascinating to be able to look around it and not yeah. be just not be distracted by trying to pay attention to the to the dialogue of the plot. Mm-hmm. just to get a look at the sets a little bit closer. Yeah. And occasionally, and I know this is a little strange because this is not normally what I would pay attention to, but occasionally I like paying attention to some of the clothing. And one of the things that I was noticing in this is that since I knew that in the mm-hmm. special effects sequences, um there's a there that Vincent Price is wearing a, a bodysuit of cl- uh, of mm-hmm. black velvet. Yeah. yeah. And then putting clothes on over it in those sequences where he undresses. I'm I'm watching it really closely and I'm realizing, yeah, this man's real thin. But if you're looking, but the the, the one mm. flaw is that there's no way to not notice. I mean, there, well, mm. it, you don't notice it, but there's no way to not think after the fact while you're, oh yeah, he he's looking a little bulkier around the middle there because he's wearing another layer of yeah, clothing. Uh, yeah. He's wearing another <laughs> layer of cloth that's in the way. <laughs>
2: yeah,
1: which I, which I think is pretty neat. But once yeah. again, that's not something that would have would have been evident to my eye without it being in high definition, sure. which yeah. is kind yeah. of fascinating. Yeah. One of my favorite little things in this, and I can't, I can't discuss this movie without talking about this this bit of dialogue, uh-huh. is um, they're you know the, during the middle part of the film where where they're where they're, or, where they're hiding uh, our invisible man um, in this country home mm-hmm. outside outside the town to keep him away from prying eyes. They've got him all bandaged up uh well the man who t- the the man who takes care of the place for them this uh, this this country fellow who's kind of the caretaker of this this area mm. um he's <laughs> kind of a bumbling character and there's a there's a there's another guy who's who see who who at one point this character is on the phone reporting back i think he's i, can't, I can't, he's some kind of gendarme i can't remember exactly but he knows that this bandaged fellow who's supposedly a a patient of our scientist character, mm-hmm. is uh, upstairs with Nan Gray's character. Uh-huh. And he's on the phone, and he says, <laughs> uh, oh, he's on the phone with the uh, Inspector Samson, actually, and he says, hey, da 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 says, and Samson immediately twigs that this is probably who he's after. This is probably mm-hmm. our escaped, mm-hmm. quote-unquote, murderer. Mm-hmm. And so he's trying to get this guy to keep him there, and he says, uh, <laughs> he says, mm-hmm. um... Whatever you do, don't let him take his clothes off. And the guy said, "Well, he's not about to do that. He's 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 upstairs with a woman." <laughs> yeah. That and what it. I love uh-huh. is that you can tell the inspector yeah. on hearing that,
2: yeah,
1: it's like it's like a it's like two beats before the before the guy on our end it realizes how silly what he said sounded. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> but it's it's
1: one of those beautiful beautiful stuff. adult yeah. moments in the yes. movie where you're yeah. like. Really, he's upstairs
2: <laughs>
1: with a woman, and yeah. you're sure he's not going to take his clothes off. Are you yeah. positive now? But I, just, I think that's um, yeah,
2: great. It is great. I, I, yeah, I like the I, just, I like the restrained and clever use of the humor in this yeah. film. There's yeah. good dialogue. Uh, nice little kind of puns on the whole invisibility thing but none of them overdone no um, again I'm just so glad there was no Uno O'Connor character in this film <laughs> and I know she has her defenders but I'm not one of them I just I, find I I I, I, her I can defend
1: her I can defend her in certain, in certain roles not mm-hmm. all of them yeah
2: well I mean and I, I know she did I know she wasn't always the I guess the oh, James, yeah. the James yeah. Whale Uno O'Connor let's put it that way that's the one that I, yeah, had, I had a lot understand. of trouble with I understand. <laughs> that's it, the one that it, I just it, have it, never been able to uh,
1: like <laughs> it, it can be a little overbearing yeah that's yeah, I, I agree with you. Sometimes you know, Connor's a bit much, and mm-hmm. yeah, I will never say that I'm not. I will yeah. never say <laughs> I'm I'm not happy. She's not in a film. Yeah. So, <laughs> let me see if I can double negative my yeah, way there into a well, hole there. So, <laughs> but yeah,
2: this 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 I I, I I do enjoy this film a lot. I think it's got a. Um, I think it's it's like I said. I like the pace of it. I like the care they put into it uh, i was surprised
1: I, I was surprised to learn how well it was received at the time that it came well, out the yeah, it did. critics in nineteen forty mm. praised pretty it pretty counter. pretty heavily mm. in the movie sure. i mean the movie did well mm. and I would have known that it did well because they made two more obviously mm. so it it had to have done well but it just seemed odd mm. to me to to read some of the the critiques uh at the time and mm. they're all very positive, just no. saying good things about them mm. uh, about the film and uh, I don't know why, but i just it did not expect that no. It is interesting to note that uh, three of the actors in this movie had just made a movie together before this. Yes, <laughs> uh, that was Tower of Tower London. Tower of London, and uh, three actors, two of them the same, along with Cecil Calloway, would end up in the same year making The House of Seven Gables mm-hmm.
2: together. So, also directed by Joe May. So. Also
1: directed by Joe May. Yeah. So it's 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 one of those things where yeah, it's like
2: they just walked across the lot to another <laughs> set and like you know <laughs> made another film because it's the same cast. <laughs> yeah. Took, took a couple of
1: weeks to get to <laughs> yeah. learn the script and then got to work. But. Uh, that's going to be one of the fun things of going through these 40s Universal mm-hmm. films is, is following certain character not not necessarily lead actors but some of the character actors that are going to show up repeatedly mm-hmm. over time in these movies in different mm-hmm. roles and uh, that's fun yes um, so Invisible Man not a classic in my opinion I don't think this is a great film no um, as a matter of fact I on the 1 to 10 scale I end up giving it about a 6 whereas mm-hmm. I believe the the original is honestly like an 8 or a 9 oh, yeah. I'd, I'd have to go back and rewatch it to really evaluate whether I'd split it down you know the 8 or 9 on the mm-hmm. 10 scale cuz I think it's phenomenal. It is but. one of the classics. Uh
2: yeah, I was I was kind of wavering between a 6 and a 7, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it, I I probably would go with a 6 just for the fact that it's probably still not going to be one that I'm going to return to as often as I do so many of the other Universal films. Again, this is the first time in years. I'm glad that we did the show to make me watch it again because I do yeah. appreciate uh, that it is a it is uh, good for for what it is, good for what it does, and and that everybody does a good job on it. So it's uh but yeah, it's just not one of those that necessarily just you know sticks in your brain is just you know one know, you just feel know, compelled to get back to again. But you have to give it credit for being a very competent. A very efficient film and uh, well done.
1: It's well made. I enjoy it, but you're right. I the reason it had been so many yeah. years since I've watched this is because it's not as interesting. Mm. It's better than the next two in the series, mm. but it's not as interesting, mm. which is strange mm. to it say is. but yeah, true. But, yeah, um, but because quite honestly, the next two have massive, massive flaws mm. and are not nearly as good and are, and are not going to be sixes on the one-to-ten scale, in my opinion. But at the same time, there's something about them that keeps yeah. them from being as, who, what's the word, pedestrians wrong? Mm. Um, um, bland is, is not mm. quite the right yeah, word. I know, but, but I know what you're there's, at. There's, 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 there's something about it that there's nothing in this movie that makes it pop.
2: Yeah, was the there something maybe more pulpy about those next couple of, or maybe more, yeah. more, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, something that maybe more appeals to the more fun aspect of of what you go these yeah. films for than this one does? You know, maybe this yeah. one isn't as fun enough that you know that still doesn't seem like the right way to put it because it's still a yeah. fun movie. I mean, it's but I don't know, I don't know what quite what we're looking for here, but but I think it just comes down to that again is it just doesn't com- it just doesn't draw you back to it to like man, there's right. something about this film that I just want to see again. You know, I have to return to every now and then, like you do. Some of the films that you would have to admit of the '40s films that you would have to admit probably aren't as technically
1: oh, no, no, good yeah.
2: or as well written as this. But I'm going to return to that film more than I'm going to this yeah, one.
1: I've, I've rewatched The Mummy's Curse more t- way more times than I've ever watched mm-hmm. this film, and it's not because it's a better film, right? Yeah. So, yeah. you know what can I say? Mm-hmm. But uh, I tell you what, we're going to take a little break. We'll come back. We've got a couple of pieces of mail, and uh, we'll uh, we'll take a run through those, and then we will uh, see what happens after that. Yeah.
0: A spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Here, your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classics and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies.
1: all right we've got a few uh some of them very old i'll admit because yeah uh, <laughs> we've got a few letters here uh, that come into the bloody pit at gmail.com and a few of them, a couple of them, are uh, months old, and for that I apologize. Uh, not that uh, uh, I should feel guilty, but I feel guilty. And I probably should feel guilty. What am I saying? Of course <laughs> I should. But nevertheless, what it is is uh, uh, part of the problem with The Bloody Pit, as you may have noticed if you've gone through the episodes, is that Troy and I are not are not together on every episode. Uh, often I am doing podcasts with other people. And if this is you know, if a particular person writes in referencing an episode mm. that Troy and I are doing yeah. I, I I kind of feel obliged to not necessarily bring mm. that piece of mail up and talk about it with someone else because then how does Troy respond? Because yeah. he doesn't have the opportunity. He may not even he may not even hear it until a long time well, that's, later. That's
2: sporting of you, because you could at that you could use that opportunity to say, like, well, actually that was my idea. Troy didn't have anything to do with that. And then I'll take full credit for that.
1: All Troy's ideas are garbage. <laughs> yeah. The only reason this is any good at all. All things you like are mine. No. Uh, but this is this is from several months ago, and this is just a note from uh from Michael. He said, uh, Doug your Inquisition commentary. And speaking of commentary tracks, Check out the commentary track for Incident at Loch Ness featuring Werner, Werner Herzog. Uh, also, I thought The Mummy, the uh, the the new film, the film yeah. last summer, yeah. was great. So he agrees with me. Mm-hmm. I think they borrowed some creep factor from Curse of the Mummy, uh, the the older film, The Curse of the Mummy,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and he may be right.
2: Yeah, I have still not gotten. Got to watch that yet? I plan to, but I've not. Oh, incident! That, incident, it.
1: Loch Ness, or,
2: or uh, no, movie? no, the mummy. No, I love Incident and Loch Ness. No, I'm talking about the the mummy. I've not gotten to see it, but yeah, Incident Loch Ness. Now I've not gotten to hear the commentary track. But I'm sure that if it's anything like uh, Herzog's other commentary tracks, it's great. He's great. I just love his. He's got one of the greatest voices in the world too. Yeah. It's good. I just love but his but his commentary tracks are great and Incident like Ness is just a blast. It is a really, of course,
1: I can't, really I can't, fun film. I can't think of Werner <laughs> Herzog without yeah. thinking mm-hmm. thinking about this this ongoing comedy thing that plays through my head, which is that, you know, ev- everything fills with you, Werner Herzog is depressing no matter what it is. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> and now the cartoon bunny. Yeah. The cartoon Runs yes. away yes. from the cartoon hunter. <laughs> and the cartoon hunter is enraged.
2: Both of them know that it's futile. <laughs> futile. Their lives are futile. Yes. <laughs> Neither
1: of them are aware that the landscape behind them is an endlessly repeating repetitive <laughs> of the entire <laughs> background of their lives. The same twelve trees over. our and over again, there is no amount of carrot eating that can make this existence worthwhile. <laughs> I don't know. All right, all right, sorry. Um, this is another. This is another piece from uh, from Billy. Uh, Something about this, I know I've read this. He says, uh, hey guys, uh, after your Gamera episode, I went down a little internet rabbit hole looking at Gamera and other kaiju clips and trailers. I wound up in an interview with voice actor Ted Thomas, which was originally included as a bonus supplement on the Media Blaster's Godzilla vs. Megalon disc. I recognize Thomas's voice immediately, as I'm sure you will too. He's quite a rock on tour, and has many great stories about his career and movie dubbing. I think you and your listeners will enjoy it. And then he uh, sent the link oh, along. Oh, cool. He says thanks for your podcast and keep up the great work. Awesome. Uh, that's interesting because yeah. uh, I'm as I've discussed before, I'm terrible at recognizing voice actors. Mm. I just can't do it. it mm. It's it's terrible. Even when it's pointed out to me that this the, a mm. very distinctive actor's mm. voice, uh, you know, over five or six films, they'll say he played this character and this mm. character, and this character. Mm. It can be very difficult for me without really bearing down and concentrating mm-hmm. to recognize a voice from film to film to film. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's sad because I watched so many dubbed mm-hmm. movies that you would yeah. think that was just, that's just something that I would immediately twig to. You mm-hmm. know, I would eventually, it would become second nature to notice, oh yeah, 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 this is the same voice who did that.
2: Well, most of the ones that I recognize are ones that were from the original dubs of the Toho Golden Age films, you know, and unfortunately okay. some of those were redubbed and, and it's hard to get the original dubs or come across them anymore uh but the uh, original dubs from those those uh, 50s 60s early 70s Godzilla movies had some voices that I can recognize you know uh, from mm-hmm. time to time uh, uh that uh, in, in other films but uh but yeah yeah that's uh but that's but yeah that's that's a whole fascinating uh you know aspect of films because these guys had to be in the shadows for years of course you know the whole yeah. idea was you weren't supposed to know who they were they were supposed to stay hidden and so it's only been in recent you know, times now that they've, people have gone back and started actually interviewing these people who were in on this process here.
1: Yeah. And then th- thank goodness. Oh, because yeah. Some of the tales they have to tell are just oh, they're great. Abs- they're, yeah. they're amazing to learn.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, one last one here from, uh, from Theodore. Uh, I, he signs it Ted, but his name is Theodore. So I may have just given away. Yeah, I was, I was about like, to say, I'm he's out over. there he's cringing. No, don't do, don't do that. He says, uh, hi there. Love both your podcasts. Been listening for a couple of years now, but I haven't had the nerve to write in. There's no, there's no we reason say to, we don't buy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. He says, "I have this memory, possibly false, of watching the Tales from the Crypt version of and all through the house." That was uh, what we did. What we did is a Christmas episode this yeah. past year. Yeah. He says, "I have a uh, a memory, possibly false, of watching that with, uh, but with an intro or outro or bumpers featuring Michael J. Fox. I specifically remember him complimenting Mary Ellen Trainor uh, on her screaming ability at the end." Uh, she was the lead actress. Right. Uh, does this ring any bells? I did a quick search and came up empty. Uh, I'm going to pause in his email and say that I did, I as that, I read this, yeah, I did it? a quick, intense search and uh, wrote back and forth with him for a little bit about the fact that it would appear, he can't find it on YouTube, nobody seems to have yeah. preserved this yeah. and posted it up on YouTube, but it would appear that it's very possible that Michael J. Fox. Did some hosting of some episodes and rebroadcast because uh, Michael J. Fox directed an episode or two of the show. That's true he in did. the later seasons, and and uh, he has of course, uh, as you might expect, Robert Zemeckis uh, made. Of course, yeah, he had uh, was, so He There's your connection. He, he, made, yeah. he, he made not only the Back to the Future film yeah, for Michael right, J. Fox, but right. he, he made he directed and all through the house the uh, the eighty uh, nine version. Mm-hmm. Um uh, by the way, my uh, it turns out that uh, the actress, uh, miss Tra- uh, Miss Trainer was actually. Miss Zemeckis at the time
2: mm-hmm. so, okay.
1: that, so there's another connection there so it's very possible that he did some intros yeah, and outros yeah. hosting some episodes some specific episodes at some point but I can't find them you to did, save my did you life
2: get, did you circle back around to John Hudson who co-hosted that with us because uh, if anybody would remember it would probably be him you know, And
1: no I haven't touched to basically about that back. and I, I planned to I, I planned to when he yeah. he and I recorded last la, uh, mm-hmm. last month and I completely forgot yeah, it, of course we
2: have to see if he, we'll have to ask him to see if he remembers that because yeah that, that's um, interesting. Wow. I don't remember that at all, but I can totally see how that could have happened because you're right. All the connections are there.
1: Yeah, but. yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, I, I, I don't know what's going on. Going back to, uh, to Ted's email, this is, I'm going to throw uh, throw in that I'm so glad you covered strange love of the vampires on Nashicast. It's great to know I'm not the only person in the world who's seen that movie. <laughs> I did make my girlfriend watch it. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Strange Love of the Vampire oh, is... Um, I've see, I've got a better-looking version of it now than the one that we used yeah. when we covered the film several years back. Mm. Uh, but it's one that's in desperate need of some kind of uh, oh, yeah. restoration, that's for sure. Because it's, it's what we're seeing. It's a good film. The more you conceive it, the better it is. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. Which is the sign of a film that needs a bit more attention, I right. think.
2: But you're right. Even in that really bad first copy we watched, we could tell that, boy, there's interesting things going on in this yeah. film. Yeah, this is definitely...
1: And, and Emma Cohen, uh, there, there, there are two or three films, I think, where Emma Cohen was able to take the lead and um, do a really fantastic job. She wasn't afforded as many opportunities of, of that type as uh, I would have liked. And uh, there's a fantastic Jess Franco film. Yeah, I want to see that. Uh, yeah. yeah, that she's phenomenal in, and I think Strange Loves of the Vampire. She's, you know, she's le- she's the lead, and she's very, very good as well.
2: The Jess uh, Franco film is it Mirror? What is it? Mirrors in the title, oh, the, right? Uh, uh, what's it?
1: It's called the Obscene Mirror. It's okay. Uh, Tim Lucas and I talked briefly about it a couple of years ago in mm-hmm. a little a, a bonus Beyond episode, mm-hmm. uh, and it's phenomenal. She's incredible in that. It's probably her finest performance that I've seen anyway, mm-hmm. but she's also very good in um, Strange Loves of the Vampire, and it's and it's worth seeing. It's it's one of those that well, I'd love to see both of those yeah. films get some kind of fantastic restoration and get released, well... Even if it's just on DVD, I'd be happy with that. Yes, but uh, yeah, yeah, there, there, we we're a small cult of fans of that movie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but we have good reason for the cult to be yes. small because almost no one knows about the film. As he says, own <laughs> yeah. Uh, he says, I can't believe you got to see pieces in the theater. <laughs> that rules. <laughs>
2: yeah. I, I did. Yes, I did yes, see did. pieces That's in pretty the awesome. theater.
1: That's true. I did. Uh, thanks for all your hard work. Ted, um, thank you, Ted. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Uh, and I would like to circle back to our first uh, email and thank him for his kind words about our acquisition, our Inquisition uh, commentary track. Yeah, yeah. We we were we were very happy to be able to get the 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 commentary tracks we did last year. The the five Nashi films we were able to cover mm-hmm. was it was a golden opportunity, and we we continue to to receive uh, compliments yeah. from people who are. Yeah. And that's one of the great things it's about great that is that it's yeah. it's gonna be it's gonna be one of those things and it, it's mm. something that really kind of sank in over as that mm. year went on, is that like, you know, these are going to be sitting on people's shelves yeah. or being bought by people for the next six, seven years, yeah. and so people are going to be checking these things out yeah. over the next decade.
2: Yeah, because I mean, if you're like me, you know, I mean, it takes me forever to get around to some of the audio commentaries. Exactly. I've had audio audio commentaries sitting on my shelves for years that I hadn't had a chance to <laughs> check out yet. So some, True. some, so yeah, they'll they'll be still circulating out there and. And people will be checking them out from time to time, and that's fun to know. So it is, we, it, we enjoyed that. Really that was a good experience yeah. doing those. We had fun.
1: Fantastic. Well, I will say cool. that um, this is, uh, as, as an inaugural uh, dive into the 1940s Universal Horror Films, I'm really glad that we have gotten this ball rolling. Yeah. Um, and uh, Troy and I would like to go ahead and, and tell you what the next one's going to be. Mm-hmm. And if you thought this one wasn't necessarily a horror film, boy. Mm-hmm. the next one is often referred to as the one that ain't a horror movie right yeah <laughs> so we're gonna we're, we we debated pull, this a little yeah, bit yeah pull back the curtain a bit here folks we really debated whether or not to talk about this film because there is that question of whether or not it's a horror film and really yeah. it's not but yeah it's, it's also got yeah. a, a golden opportunity there that we're not going to get again, which would yeah. be
2: yes, our two horror icons, Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff, in a film together. Yep. And I think we figured out it is their last Universal. It's their last, last universal, universal film, horror film yeah. and so we figured, like, uh, yeah, we, we if we want to talk about those two in one film together, we need to do it. Uh, so yes, we may regret it. Who knows? But uh, but uh, <laughs> but that's hopefully you won't. Yeah. Hopefully, you won't.
1: I, fe- I fear that we. I, yeah, yeah, I fear that we will regret it, but. Next time Troy and I sit down to talk about universal horror films of the 1940s, we're going to discuss Black Friday yep. from the same year, 1940, just a few months later. Mm. Um, my memories of this film are not good. Mm. Same here. So this could be... But it's been a while, I would say. It's, you it's, know, been, it's, it's yeah, been a very long time. Yeah. I have, I'll be honest. I haven't watched this since the days of VHS. hmm so. I think
2: I've seen a movie once since that, but it's still been a long time. So, Celling. yeah. All I remember is just thinking, "This ain't a horror movie." <laughs> 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 Where's you know, the monsters? Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I think,
1: I think we're in agreement. <laughs> I think you're right. It's not. <laughs> so, oh man, it's gonna be like the next. It's gonna be the film after that before we can get to one that we can just honestly say this is a horror movie, right? Mm-hmm. So this is this mm-hmm. definitely like supernatural horror, monsters yeah. and stuff, right? Wow. <sighs> Jeez. Folks, thank you very much for listening. Remember, you can reach us at thebloodypit at gmail.com. We'd love mm-hmm. to hear from you. There's also a Facebook page over on the old book of faces if you'd like to check in with us and are not terrified that someone's going to take all of your information and mm-hmm. alter the future of our damned country. <laughs> Please join us over there. Uh, um, Troy? Yes. Thank you for, uh, thank you for taking uh, the time to sit down and go through you, this movie. Yeah, with enjoy it. this. This is going to be a fun series. I think this will be a blast. So, I am Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. And we will talk to you again soon.
0: Of course I can. Just think what I could do for my country. Or let's say, with my country. Control it! Other nations would tremble before us, as this nation will tremble before me. Don't you see what my power does for me? I could sit in on the councils of kings and (coughs) dictators. It makes me king! It makes me nemesis! Geoffrey, do you remember a promise I made you? What promise? To restrain you if the effects of the duo cane disturbed your mind. Are you by any chance trying to be amusing?